G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. 2020, bringing a biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. Weekdays on UCB's Vision Radio Network. Find out more at vision.org.au. Hi, it's Neil Johnson and welcome to today's 2020 podcast from the Vision Radio Network. Remember, you can hear 2020 weekdays from 10am Australian Eastern Standard Time. Part two today of our series of conversations with New York Times best-selling author Eric Metaxas and Lee Hatcher about seven men and their secret of greatness. Eric picked seven significant men over some 300 years of history and simply told their remarkable stories to point to what makes a person great. Last week, we had a bit of an overview of this important book and looked at the life of the former American president, George Washington. This week, two more of these great men, William Wilberforce, who's been called one of the great social reformers of history, and Eric Liddell of Chariots of Fire fame. Eric, before we look at these two particular men, I wanted to ask you about one particular target group you have in mind for your book, and that is young men. And you say that, historically speaking, role models have always been important, but that's changed in recent years. Yeah, I mean, it's important for me to say that the book has been read by everyone and by many women. It's not written specifically for young men, but I did think of them specifically when I was writing it because I said they particularly have lacked great role models. In in the last, you know, whatever, let's say 40 years, there's been this kind of denigration of uh, heroic manhood. There's been a kind of a denigration of the idea of the hero. We've gotten very uh, cynical in America. We think that, you know, every president is a potential Richard Nixon and that every uh, athlete is a, using steroids. I mean, somehow the cynicism has leached into the culture to a point where we're no longer able to think of, of heroes very effectively. And I said this is harming young men especially. I think that they've, they've lost their way, and they need to know what is God's idea of a great man. They need to have something to shoot for. To me, this is it. This is why I wrote the book. And so the book did very, very well around graduation and Father's Day. But I think graduation, a lot of folks wanted to give this to young men. And I, I kind of thought that would happen, because so many of us who are parents think about this. I, I want my daughter to spend time with young men that understand this idea of greatness, sacrifice, nobility, chivalry, if we can go that far. These seven heroes from history, real men, not not figures of my imagination, these men lived lives worthy of emulation. I said, just telling these stories in a, in a really readable way, short, you know, keep it short, um, I, I, I felt that this was valuable. You say your greatest role model is Jesus, which is an easy thing to say, and it sounds good. What does it practically mean for you and personally, Eric? For me, of course, Jesus is my Savior, my Lord, my God, but we'll put that aside and talk about him as a great human being. And as a great human being, what do we see? We see sacrifice. He washes the feet of his disciples on Maundy Thursday. That's the most dramatic example. But here the teacher uh, gets on his knees and does something that a, a slave, a servant would do, he was humble. He humbled himself. 
Now, if anybody had the right to exalt himself, Jesus did. But he didn't. He humbles himself. He's baptized. Why was he baptized? He didn't have any sins to be washed away. Well, he identifies. He humbles himself, condescends, and identifies with broken humanity. He leans down, you know. He, he doesn't say, no, you've got to come up here. And that, to me, is the picture of, of real greatness, is, is a greatness that's able to, to reach down, to humble itself, and it's, it's beautiful. And, of course, the cross is the ultimate example of that, to do something for everyone else, for others, for his enemies, to love his enemies. It's just, uh, to me, that, that concept is woven through these seven uh, stories of these seven real men. Well, to the first of our two great men, William Wilberforce. And we find him in the mid-1700s living with his wealthy uncle and aunt in Wimbledon, yeah. London. It was a critical time for him, wasn't it? It's an amazing story. Anybody who saw the movie Amazing Grace got the guts of the battle for the abolition of the slave trade, that story. But the rest of his life wasn't in that movie. And I said, in my book, Amazing Grace, I want to tell the whole story. And what you discover is just beyond amazing. I mean, I've never seen anything like this. Part of that, in this chapter in my book, I tell about his upbringing, how his mother was dying. He thought she was very ill. The father dies. And he's sent to live with his aunt and uncle, who are these tremendously wealthy people, but they also happened to be that very rare thing in that culture. They were serious Christians. They were called Methodists or enthusiasts. These were very serious Christians. They were friends with uh, John Wesley, with John Newton. Um, Extraordinary to think uh, that they knew George Whitfield, the great evangelist. And so little Wilberforce moves in with them, and they adopt him, and he's exposed to these heroes of the faith, to John Newton, and it really touched him deeply. But then his mother catches wind of it, he, she rescues him, takes him home out of this, you know, these Methodists, these crazy Christians, and, and really the grandfather and the mother tried to scrub his soul clean, as uh, somebody put it, of Methodism. And by the time he goes to college, he is really the sophisticated, urbane, witty, charming, non-believer that they hoped he would be. They, they, they really took him away from his faith. But then, uh, after college, he finds faith dramatically, about age 26, and it certainly changes his life completely. And by that time, he's been in Parliament for six years. He entered Parliament just two weeks after his 20th birthday. Yeah, he was, he was extremely young, and his friend, uh, one of his closest friends, was William Pitt the Younger, who, of course, was the son of William Pitt the Elder, and William Pitt the Elder was a great statesman who who'd trained his son to be a great statesman. And so Wilberforce is hanging out with this, this young friend who uh, takes very naturally to politics. So the two of them, at a very young age, gain all kinds of power. At age 24, mm-hmm. William Pitt becomes prime minister. Wilberforce uh, also has a very high position. And just two years later, he has this dramatic conversion experience. He didn't ask for it. It was very inconvenient. Uh, and that's when he goes to his old friend John Newton. That's, of course, the former slave trader who became a, a pastor and who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. He goes to Newton and says, what do I do? I've, I've become someone who believes in all these things. I, I hadn't believed in them. Now I believe in them. But everyone will mock me. I live in a culture, uh, especially in the political culture, where they don't believe any of this. They mock people who believe these things. It's fashionable to be bad, to sleep with all kinds of women, to be drunk on the floor of Parliament. I'm not going to fit in. And the, the great John Newton says, who knows, but 
that you were created by God for just such a time as this, and that you should stay in politics, bring your Christian faith into the world of politics. And of course, Wilberforce does this in spades for the next decades, devotes himself uh, to doing great things for his nation, and uh, the most notable, of course, is the abolition of the slave trade. This was his signature battle that uh, most people, when they think of Wilberforce, they think of him as the man who brought about the abolition of the slave trade. But he did so much more, because his Christian worldview touched everything. It was a very broken culture, and as he brought his faith into it, uh, you know, he was on a crusade, and uh, he had many friends at that time supporting him. And he, But what he gave up, ultimately, was the opportunity to be prime minister. Most people said, of course, he would have been prime minister, but he chose his principles over party. Uh, he really was someone who said, I've got to live for others. He lived for the African slave, did everything he could, not just to abolish the slave trade, but slavery itself, uh, and, and just did so much. He was, he was a crusader in that sense, a social reformer. But he knew that, you know, you can't outgive God if you do the right thing. Uh, that's, uh, that's the only way to fly. And, you know, he, he, he really did fly that way. Talk about a great man. I mean, even friends who didn't read my Amazing Grace book on Wilberforce, I hope they'll read the 20 pages on Wilberforce in my Seven Men book. It's just one of the stories you can't really go through life not knowing it. It's too inspiring. It's too wonderful. We need to be inspired. It's a powerful testimony. And we need to keep remembering that at this time, Britain was the greatest empire in the world. So to relinquish the opportunity of becoming prime minister and pursue in his mind a higher thing was a very big sacrifice. Well, that's, that's a good thing to be reminded of. It was a great sacrifice. But he really did know God. And when you know God, really... You can't help but want to serve him. You just know that that's, that is the better choice. But you need to know that, and, and we need to all of us be reminded that some of the greatest men in history really knew that and lived by it and changed the world for the better because of it. Along the way, he had a number of crushing defeats, didn't he? Oh, my gosh. The, the, the story, I mean, and I, I put all these in my book. He just, time after time... He would battle and battle and then lose by a hair, and oh, it was crushing. But the main thing is that he knew God called him to do what he did. It wasn't uh, just his idea or some crusade. He, he felt God had called him to do these things, and, and the results were in God's hands. And so he was really surrendered to God. He said, I'm going to do my part, do everything I can, but the results are in God's hands. And I think that's very important for all of us to learn that lesson that we're not to be victors, we're to be obedient, and God will he'll have the victory his way. Eric, beyond the influence that he had in the slave trade, you mentioned how he changed culture. What were the ways in which the culture of that time was different, the culture of our time in some ways was different? It was fashionable to be bad. I mean, the, the, the leading figure in the land who became King George IV, uh, at that time the Prince of Wales, was a rake, was, was, a, was a bum, an absolutely dissolute figure. He was famous. He was known for having slept with 7,000 women over the years. And I try to imagine not only that he did this, but that he was famous for this, that it was celebrated. People were celebrated for being drunks, for, for being uh, publicly drunk, drunk on the floor of Parliament. It was, it was a culture where these things were celebrated. Of course, it's very much like that today to some extent. And Wilberforce knew that God had better plans for that culture. There were people who were suffering, uh, usually the poor suffer, you know, when it's not fashionable to, to do good. The rich people don't do, do good for the poor. They don't help them. They don't care about them. And that was the, the whole culture at that time. It's hard for us 
to understand how broken that culture was, but it was a very pagan culture, a very dark culture. And Wilberforce comes into that culture, and practically everywhere he turns, he sees something to do. There was penal reform. The prison conditions were horrific. There was child labor. There was public animal cruelty, bull baiting, and bear baiting. And I write about all that in my book because I didn't really know anything about it until I did the research. It's extraordinary what, what, a, what a broken culture it was. And almost everywhere he looked, he saw something either he could do or he could encourage others to do. And it really is, uh, I'm, I must say, remarkable what he ended up doing. It's hard to believe, except I did the research. I know it's true. And by the time he left this world, it was dramatically different. I mean, really, it should give all of us hope for the future. Yes. William Wilberforce. You're listening to the 2020 podcast on the Vision Radio Network. Eric Metaxas is a New York Times best-selling author, and he's likely to continue this success with his latest offering, Seven Men and Their Secret of Greatness. We've already heard Eric discussing with Lee Hatcher, the great political former William Wilberforce, as part of our four-week series looking at some of the men profiled in this book. As we continue the conversation, it turns to Olympian Eric Liddell of Chariots of Fire fame. Like what you've just heard? There's more great podcasts, or you can listen to us live at vision.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation of any amount will help us continue connecting faith to life. Learn more or donate today at vision.org.au.